Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I force myself and my husband to learn new things. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this week, I wanted to get into some science and go with something I know and love, something near and dear to my heart. I thought that by analyzing old biology textbooks, I'd find some inspiration, and I hit pay dirt. I found an old exam question that asked me to explain the existence of males. And I laughed. But I found that although once upon a time I could, in fact, explain to you the purpose of males. Evolutionarily and ecologically speaking, I'm not talking about the philosophical arguments here. Um, At this time, I, I couldn't remember at all. So I thought it was time for another look. So here we go. Let's talk about sex, baby. I had to say it because it's almost impossible not to finish that sentence that way. Of course. From a scientific perspective, let's talk about sex. This is a great topic for an episode. I got a refresher, I learned some new things, and i it's just terribly interesting. It's maybe a little science heavy, but it's so much fun to think about. Um, There are a lot of educated guesses in evolutionary science, but a lot of data too. So it's like a logic puzzle trying to put those things together and understand how certain things may have evolved. I love it. But consequently, once I started researching and finding things that intrigued me, this episode turned into three episodes. Or six. Uh, We'll find out. I guess. I haven't finished writing them, so you never know. I might walk this back next time. For now, it's three episodes. And let's dive right in. This is The Evolution of Sex Part 1, where we'll discuss why sex is a big problem for evolutionary biologists. Great. Teach me something. So the background here is that evolutionary biologists whose job it is to explain why organisms do the things they do, don't really have a widely accepted explanation for why sex is a thing. To clarify, sex or sexual reproduction is defined by exchanging genetic material between organisms. That's what I mean when I'm saying sex here over and over. Intercourse, or like physical contact between organisms, is not required. (laughs) It's not the only way to reproduce sexually. Right. Yeah, there's lots of animals. I would assume especially in the sea or water scenarios where that's not the case anymore. Right. Um, You know, invertebrates, all those guys. But but it's puzzling, really. There are persuasive arguments that exist that, that sex shouldn't exist. It seems anomalous on evolutionary grounds, but evolutionary biologists are trying to explain life on evolutionary grounds. So really what we have is that sex... A common expression in the field is sex is the queen of evolutionary problems. It's been the preeminent issue in the field for the last four, if not five decades. It's sort of like those famous unsolvable math problems, except for in math you can actually solve a problem and know that the answer is right. Or at least you're pretty sure, whereas biology can't really prove anything. Yeah, well, in math they're called proofs for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, problems where people win like money in awards after they solved a 50 year old problem like i'm pretty sure the answer there's an actual still... answer to those things it's not like biology where yeah. you're like this is the best guess we have and we think it's probably right maybe of course yeah so i mean in evolutionary biology the goal is to explain why sex exists from an evolutionary perspective 
which is kind of like, duh, I just said the same thing over. It's almost like a circular <laughs> argument there. But what, is that, what does that really mean? <laughs> it means explaining why a behavior helps an animal increase their fitness to the point that the behavior becomes the dominant one within the population. Uh, it involves explaining how this behavior helped an organism or population of organisms be better adapted to their environment than their competition. So what doesn't make sense about sex? Well, let's start here. A powerful argument against the existence of sex is that there are so many organisms that don't do it. There are at least six types of asexual reproduction, uh, depending on how you kind of define and group things, but we're going to go with six. Okay. Budding, fission, fragmentation, vegetative propagation, mm. spore formation, and agamogenesis. And those words are fun to say, by the way. I like saying all of those words. Excellent. Plants, obviously, great example of organisms that use asexual reproduction. Flowering plants can use sexual reproduction, but most plants use an asexual method. Um, yeast, bacteria, and other unicellular life tend to use almost exclusively asexual reproduction. But bacteria do have some interesting ways of exchanging genetic material. Um, the one I'll tell you about is called conjugation. I think it's pretty cool. They like get close to each other and they use this like projection called a pilus to make a bridge between their two bodies and they like, pass genetic info back and forth. Um, and it's called parasexual reproduction because it's resembling. Para in this uh. case is resembling sexual reproduction. Close, but not perfect. I don't know what keeps it from being defined as sexual reproduction because they are exchanging genetic Yeah, that sounds pretty similar. I'm going to go with it being sexual, but okay. we have to use the fancy science terms, okay? So let's talk about an example. Cnidarians, which are the family of animals that have like hydras, corals, and sea anemones, they often use asexual reproduction. If you're going to go look up what a hydra is, spoiler alert, not as cool as it sounds. Well, Definitely not as cool as Greek mythology led you to believe. I was going to say, because if I know anything about Heracles or Hercules, it's pretty cool. Yeah. In this case, we're talking about a really little green thing that looks like a plant. Does it still have, like, acidic blood? Uh, no. That you tip your arrows in? No. No? Well, no. this has gone downhill Nothing quickly. cool like that. Hydras reproduce through budding a new organism off their main body. Um, sea anemones. There's tubular sea anemones. <laughs> tubular. I know, right? I was just going to say this reminds me of the Ninja Turtles, just to say the word tubular. Um, and they reproduce through binary fission, which fission can be binary split in two or right. multiple splitting in lots. Poly fission? No, just, just multiple fission. Mm. Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, and the really cool thing about organisms that reproduce with fission is that they are ageless biologically speaking they are immortal like in the lab they've actually proven that they don't age and it turns out that makes sense when you think about it if they did age then every time they clone themselves or split themselves which is technically still cloning in this case right then they'd be older and older and older and then they'd be extinct so, I mean, there just is no way for them to age and still reproduce. Um, so we have a mortal 
animals in the world. Super cool. Some of these asexual animals have recent sexual ancestors and evolved asexuality. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Some not so much. Some have always been asexual, but there's there's a lot of them that have branched off. Um, so the multicellular animal that has not had sex for the longest time, that honor goes to the deloid rotifer, the small aquatic invertebrate. And their dry spell has lasted for tens of millions of years. Yeah, that's but but too long bad time ago them. they did have sex. So okay, yeah. Wow. <laughs> the other super interesting form of asexual reproduction I want to talk about is agamogenesis, um, which just means reproducing without both gametes. And it's really the most fun of the different types of asexual reproduction in order to say. So cool. Oh, yeah. To say, yes. But also just so cool. <laughs> okay, fine. It's the that coolest too. kind in all, in all ways. Well, it would make sense that they give the coolest kind the coolest name. I suppose. I don't think biologists name things like that, but... But people do. <laughs> and biologists are people. <laughs> are you sure? Oh, that's... I'm I didn't say kidding. it. Um, so... There's two types, mainly. Parthenogenesis is what animals do, and apomixis is what plants do. And to do either of these things, um, they just skip meiosis. They don't divide their genetic information in half. And then they just clone themselves, basically. So um, ferns and flowering plants like dandelions use apomixis. So most species of dandelions are all female clones. Mm-hmm. There's a the few that aren't, but... Really? European dandelion. Definitely, they're all females. Interestingly, super interestingly, an example of male apomixis actually exists. The Saharan cypress. It is the only thing I could find, I looked everywhere, about any male organism able to reproduce itself by itself. So at that point, how do they define it as male? I mean, they make a certain gamete. Okay. Um, and they have certain genetics. I don't know the chromosomes, sex chromosomes of a cypress tree, but they exist. It's not like they went out and like, you know, checked it for the right sex organs. They just... I mean, they definitely went out and checked it for the right sex characteristics. Yeah, that's similar. Okay. Probably just DNA though. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but see, A little hard cool. to tell, you know. That's a I. new thing I learned. Saharan cypress. So cool. And Parthenogenesis, the animal version, is used by a great number of invertebrates, but also some reptiles, some fish, amphibians, domestic birds, maybe also some wild birds. We're having a hard time figuring out if that's true or not. I think it's happened once or twice, and they're just not sure if it's a sustainable thing or just some kind of crazy mutation but even if it was that's cool um and they've also seen it in genetically altered lab mice really right mammals. a mammal yes um so some of these species use parthenogenesis exclusively but others switch back and forth depending on the environment like the zebra shark the female um if there's just no males available in the environment she'll just reproduce by herself but if there is a male accessible then she'll reproduce with him um very independent i like it well, and that alone also suggests that it's uh, not necessarily just viable, but important to them to reproduce sexually if they have the opportunity, meaning that 
like what it's advantageous somehow in that statement alone that's a good question um Mm. it's really tough it's really tough to know because animals don't do what they're doing on purpose and evolution doesn't do what it's doing on purpose so it's really tough to say that something's important for an animal to do um, like, like you're trying to say that they may be prioritized mating yeah. with the male and I don't know why that's the case or why isn't it the case. And that's one of the problems when you talk about asexual versus sexual reproduction, why might that be the case? And really we're still so in the dark about that. Um, as of now, the largest species that we have documented parthenogenesis occurring in is the 10 foot 300-pound Komodo dragon. Those things are pretty cool. I think it's amazing that an animal that big can basically just clone itself. Yeah. But one of the most interesting examples, um, I think, of asexual reproduction in vertebrates is in the fish of the family Poceliidae. So those are live bears, mollies, guppies, tooth carp. Some fish that are actually just called live bears as okay. their name. Just fish I can't imagine now, except for being furry with like little bear faces. And... <laughs> you can legitimately see my outline and see that it's spelled live bearers as in bear live young, but okay. Oh, well, I okay. know, but it sounds like the, the <laughs> mental image of live bears swimming around with fins underneath the ocean is sort of like far superior. Bears? Yeah. Instead of ring bearers? Yes. I would also like to see bears carrying rings down the aisle. Instead on of weddings. small children? Yes. Let's kick up the notch by one in all weddings. <laughs> Get yourself a ring bear. <laughs> um, so in this fish family, there are some asexual species and some sexual ones. But the asexual species need the sperm to start their reproduction. But they don't use the sperm. And the problem is they've existed for 100,000 or more years. So there are no males. So what they have to do is they trick males of very closely related species into giving them their sperm. And the sperm has to penetrate the egg, which is what starts the egg dividing and starts reproduction. But the sperm is expelled. So it's just the physical, they literally need a sperm to physically touch the egg and out it goes and they clone themselves. Weird. Right? Super cool. Uh, There are some lizards in the genus Nemetophorus, known as whiptail lizards. And Mm. they live in deserts in Mexico and southwestern United States. Some species are sexual, others are asexual again. Um, So this is what I'm saying, some... A lot of animals evolve asexuality, and some species in that family don't. Um, the asexual ones were probably produced through hybridizing to sexual species, and that is kind of how it works sometimes. Um, it's kind of complicated. I'm not going to get into how that works. I would probably need a whiteboard and some <laughs> some markers, some drawings to, to explain that one, but... Sure. Um, the important thing to know is the asexual species have doubled the reproductive fitness of the sexual ones, so they've been really successful. And yes, I will come back to talking about fitness. Don't worry. Good. So maybe birds do it. 
and maybe bees do it, but lots of organisms don't do it. Some have endeavor, but a big point against sex here is that some have actually evolved into asexuality. Right. Sex can't be explained by saying that a sexual reproduction doesn't happen or isn't successful. Um, so getting to the next problem with sexual reproduction is males. Males are the problem. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just waiting to see what you have to say about that, but apparently apparently it's nothing. It's a smirk face. Not much. Waiting to, <laughs> waiting to see how you back this up. I know how to knock in arguments. We have been married a while. <laughs> so the fact is, let's go back to that question from the introduction. Like, why do males exist? They are costly. Here's a problem. Males are twice as costly as females, offspring-wise. And again, you're going to want to know why and what cost. What am I talking about here? So I'm talking about the fitness cost to the female organism. Let's take a slight detour to explain what fitness is. Okay. That's probably a good idea at this point. In the evolutionary sense, that is. Not just how long you can go on the treadmill. <sighs> We're going to get to that. You ruined the joke. That's what I do. I, oh, I was going to make a joke later. Okay. Nope. Great. <laughs> joke ruiner. I am sure you've heard the expression, the survival of the fittest. I have. Okay. Do you know who said that for some bonus points? Oh, boy. I wanted to say, you know, Darwin, but I'm feeling like I'm walking and into I a trap. And I want to blare the QI horn <laughs> yeah. at you for picking the obvious yeah. answer that is incorrect. That's what I was worried about. Yeah. If you were on QI, you just pull it out and say it anyways. Proudly <laughs> yes. say it and stand up and defend yourself. Um, by the way, guys, QI is a really, really funny British comedy panel show hosted by Stephen Fry, and we love it. So, one Herbert Spencer coined mm. that phrase in 1864 after reading some of Darwin's work. And mind you, this was five years before Darwin published on The Origin of Species. So it was, you know, based on some earlier thoughts. And while it's an accurate statement, um, if you understand it scientifically... It's been, unfortunately, co-opted by free market capitalists and libertarians and such as an excuse to treat lower classes as lesser than and undeserving of social assistance with social Darwinism. Social Darwinism has nothing to do with Correct. biology. Let's just, let's just throw that out there. So it's not used, this expression is not used much anymore by scientists because it's just so easily misunderstood um, socially and just scientifically it's not well understood. Uh, first, fitness in biology refers to how many of your genes you pass on to future generations, not physical condition. Insert joke here that Everett already ruined. The more genes you pass on, the fitter you are. But second, the phrase isn't concerned with the individual organism. No one cares if they survive. <laughs> it's really only about heritable traits. It only matters that they survive long enough to pass on their genes and lots of them. Mm -hmm. Basically, the genotypes that survive are the genotypes that are passed on most to future generations. The fittest individuals tend to have the best genotypes for the environment, and those genotypes survive the test of time. I know I keep throwing in random science words, but we will talk about genotypes soon as well. I will not leave you hanging. 
go back to the problem at hand, now that we know this, how does having male offspring impact a female's potential fitness? Let's do a little math. <laughs> I know what some of you are thinking. Please do not turn off the podcast. I will go fast. As we discussed, from an evolutionary standpoint, the issue is the number of copies of her genes a female can get into the next generation. When a sexual female reproduces, she has to share her offspring's genes with a male. She gets to give one copy of her genes per offspring. Mm -hmm. He does too. But when an asexual female reproduces, the offspring is a clone of herself and she is giving two copies of her genes in one offspring. Right. So... And since she can only produce daughters, that's the important point. You can only clone yourself the same of course. same sex. So that is why it's twice as costly to her to produce males. She is wasting her reproduction on only half the genes. But the other thing to consider is that asexual females are going to quickly outnumber sexual females and they'll take over. Right. This is kind of math, but it's not so bad. Let's take an example of one sexual female and one asexual female. Let's say they both have two offspring. Mm -hmm. Let's say the sexual or sexual female will have one male and one female offspring. Right. Just on average, that's the best way to do the math. The asexual female will have two offspring as well, to yep. make it even, two females. And the sexual female is therefore replacing herself every generation, and that is it. And one to one. One to one. Not growing in population. Not growing. The asexual female basically will be doubling herself Correct. every generation. As the generations go on, this will multiply exponentially. Correct. So by the third generation, the sexual female is producing one female per generation. And then the asexual females are producing four. And then eight. And then 16. Mm, yes. You keep stealing my notes. Mm. But that's okay. I just like math. I know you do. I'm trying to extend the math part here <laughs> for all the people out there who like math. I know they exist because mm -hmm. we like math. That's true. Our kid likes math. Yeah. They exist. So we'll just keep this going. So in the next generation will be 16 and then 32 and 64 and 128. And that is how asexual females will take over. Right. Sexual males still being produced but they're gonna have a harder and harder and harder time finding anything to mate with and then they'll go extinct because they can't breed sexual females will go extinct because they can't breed so in theory why do males exist <laughs> i mean it seems way more efficient for them to have gone extinct i mean i'm expecting you to answer the question you're not answering me right now <laughs> staring right I, at you. I, I don't necessarily have the answer at hand for you. Or, or maybe I do, but it's more important to me that you learn this lesson on your own. <laughs> so letting you come to your own conclusion. How gallant of you. I know. I'm, yes, very considerate. <laughs> the next issue with sex is that sex breaks up successful genotypes. Let's get back to that genotype word. Everett, do you know what a genotype is? Would you mind explaining it for the people? No, I think they should learn on their own, too. <laughs> um, all right. All right. Uh, here, I will help you learn on your own. Mm. Here's a really simple explanation. You have two copies of each gene. Those are called alleles. 
So let's say there's a gene that gives you hairy knuckles mm-hmm. if you have the hairy allele. We'll label the version that gives you hairy knuckles big H and the allele that doesn't little H. Good. So your three possible genotypes now are big H, big H, big H, little H, and little H, little H. Mm-hmm. Now, does that make sense? As a person that hasn't done a million biology classes, does that complete your explanation, or do you have more questions about what a genotype is? Well, no, I, I understand what the genotype is, but is there a distribution at this point here where it's like one quarter are big H, big H, one quarter are little H, little H, and then do the two in the middle where it's a big H and a little H, does the uh, order have any effect? The order means nothing. Okay, so then it just takes up 50% of the potential You are correct. Combinations. Okay. I, uh, I'm not sure that that information is crucial to understand for what's coming next, but you are completely correct. Completely correct, Good job. by the way, there. Good job. We'll just edit that part out and save it forever. Um, I would like to point out that that's like very basic, and there are so many ways that that could be changed with codominance and a million other that's okay. factors. You, you said but it. like for the most basic scenarios, this is perfect. Um, and now you can think of sexual reproduction as a gene shuffler. Each parent gets to pass down one of their hairy alleles at random to their offspring. The parental genotypes are mixed up and spit back out differently for each gene and for each offspring. Mm-hmm. So just, I know you like the math, so I thought I'd throw in a little more for you. Great. Let's use a pretend organism with 10 genes and two possible alleles for each gene. Um, just for reference, humans have between 20 and 25,000 genes. So 10 genes, I'm not sure there's any organisms that have 10 genes. Okay. Um, with two organisms sexually reproducing with just those 10 genes and two alleles, we end up with 1,048,576 offspring genotypes. If we're going to trace back which allele came from which parent, which is not important. I just didn't know how to do the math to eliminate that and I found that number online so got it um maybe you can do the math one day <laughs> an easy Today's way not the day. <laughs> an easy way to think about just how many possibilities that sex gives us is if you imagine yourself playing cards um except for instead of five or ten cards in your hand you have thousands and Now think if you would ever expect to have the same exact hand twice. Doesn't really happen. Um, It's a lot of random shuffling is what I'm trying to say to you. Got it. So sex is often unable to preserve the best genotypes. Well, and by best, we mean most suited suited for the environment to survive and pass on, uh, survive long enough to pass on your genes. Um, But asexuality has no such problem, again, because the offspring are clones. Mm -hmm. If the mother was successful with that genotype, the daughter gets exactly the same genes. Right. Which, again, theoretically should lead asexually reproducing organisms to outcompete sexual ones quickly. Yes. I would also assume, though, that if the environment changes, then asexual clones would be somewhat problematic. Everett, part one of this series is about telling all the arguments against sex. Got it. 
I retract all my... Jumping (laughs) ahead into next week's episode. Got it. But again, you are completely on the right track. Completely on the right track. (laughs) Another good soundbite there. Aw, you're having a good night. I am, yeah. So, (laughs) to the last major issue with sex is just the physical costs of the whole process. I mean, huge costs. STIs, predators, anatomy, all this stuff that you don't have to worry about when you're an asexual Asexually reproducing organism. Mm, yes. Good catch. I, uh, I'm i trying to just, you know, differentiate between people and animals here a little bit. Um, so, I mean, growing often elaborate structures to facilitate sexual reproduction obviously comes at a metabolic cost. Mm-hmm. You know, you need the structures to share and accept sperm or pollen, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. You need structures like the uterus, where the offspring develops, or structures that build your eggs before you lay them, or just any of those things. You need all of that. And then there are the more complicated structures and behaviors used to attract and compete for mates, which, again, an asexual organism doesn't have to worry about. Correct. So some animals can mate on the fly, like dragonflies, but most need to copulate in a more vulnerable way which leads to them being exposed to predators while they're mating. Animals put themselves at great risk accomplishing the mating act a lot of the time. Strike one, that's terrible. <laughs> um, here's, a, here's an example that I learned about. I've never learned about this in school. I learned about it just now writing this episode. It's very cool. Um, here's an animal, Antichinus duartii. Um, it's also called the brown Antichinus. It's a small marsupial mouse, obviously, from Australia. I guess I shouldn't say obviously. There are opossums in North America. Um, For two to three weeks, every mating season, the male is going to mate as much as physically possible. Sometimes he has sex for up to 14 hours at a time. Hmm. Which produces a ton of testosterone, which spikes his stress hormone production, which crashes his immune system, because that's what testosterone does. And it makes him extremely vulnerable to disease and infection. Males will often develop gangrene and start decomposing. Oh, good. By the end of their mating season, uh, physically disintegrating males may still be running around frantically trying to mate some more. Hmm. While literally falling apart. Might be hard to run around at that point. But they still try. Yes, of Because course. sex. Uh, yes. Needless to say, every male dies after their first breeding season. They get a nice, short 10-month lifespan and then three weeks of sex. Okay. Uh Wow. So scientists call this suicidal reproduction for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think that one's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory. Blue coloration in males is generally due to testosterone. Okay. A good example is Rafiki. Hmm. Because, you know, Rafiki is a male mandrel monkey. And they've got that nice blue coloration on their face. The more brilliant the blue, the better chance they have of winning mates, but also the higher their testosterone. And as seen with the antichinus, this does not bode well for their health. Hmm. Um, And the same is true for many other blue-colored male animals, but tons of other coloration patterns are actually more bright with more testosterone. So winning mates comes at the cost of probably getting sick. Um, The Irish elk 
which is now extinct, had antlers that were over. This time we'll switch to metric. I didn't realize I didn't do that last time. I'm so sorry. Um, their antlers were over three and a half meters long and weighed 40 kilograms. So just to convert it for a lot of people that are more comfortable, 12 feet long and 90 pounds. The bigger the antlers, the more mates, but the more likely they were to literally get stuck in the forest. And therefore eaten or starve or dehydrate to death. That's a lot of antler to fit through some forest trees. I don't... Anyways, it seems awesome, but they've been extinct for a while. So who knows? We think that's what happened. They all um, got stuck in trees. Not all of them, but certainly enough. And probably humans. You know. hmm. Why humans did, any, stuck in trees why did anything go extinct? Because we killed it, right? Yeah, that too. <laughs> Um, males, um, of species that signal to their females vocally to attract mates are obviously running a huge risk of being heard by predators and located. The louder the call, the more mates and the more predators try to come eat them and probably do. Um, yeah. this is a, you know, frogs, this is an issue for frogs. There's been a lot of studies about how frogs call and maybe they get their, their mates in, but, but then they become a tasty little bat snack, so... Um, fireflies, they glow, they glow to attract mates. They go in different colors. It's pretty cool to send different messages. But anyways, they glow brightly to attract mates and then something eats them. Um, as you can see from the frog and the firefly example, you don't have to be having sexual intercourse. <laughs> to be vulnerable due to sex. Exactly. You finished my sentences. Mm. It's like we know each other. I could finish your sandwiches too. That'd be fine. You do that, though. You already, I already do, that. do that, too, yeah. I honestly could go on and on all day about these examples. Um, but needless to say, we don't have all day. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wanted to point out that most mating strategies, almost everything is a double-edged sword for males. Anything that gets you more mates is probably also something that's going to endanger your life. Um, or, you know, doom them all together. We haven't even gotten into all the animals where the females eat the male after or during copulation. <laughs> Gotta yeah. get that protein to make those eggs. And I guess that's a convenient, you know, nearby source at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this sexual cannibalism, as it's called, unsurprisingly, yeah. is seen in amphipods and gastropods and copepods and insects and especially arachnids. Um, notable examples you've probably heard of are praying mantis, Chinese mantis, black widow spiders, jumping spiders, and lots of scorpions too. Hmm. Um, another example of mating with assured destruction is in the Amygdala Dawsoni, which is the Dawson's burying bee. So those guys are a solitary nesting bee from Australia. God, Australia has some very uh, mm. cool and weird and dangerous animals um only to each other though you see when they emerge in the spring from their burrows which as a burrow and bee you would not be surprised to hear they spend their winters in a burrow yeah um they instantly are just looking to do one thing and one thing only there is only one chance for them to mate and it is now right so this intense competition when they're all emerging at the same time all the females emerging it's a well I take that back. A lot of times some of the males start to emerge before the females and they start to fight early. 
but like it's just a lot of competition which is a you know fighting frenzy mm -hmm. and uh in the end it leads to the death usually by decapitation they, they kind of tend to rip each other's heads off um of every male so hopefully you got some females before that but they're assured to die and last but certainly not least in the physical cost of sex is the risk of stis any species with internal fertilization is at risk here. Um, although you won't be surprised to know that the species most plagued by sexual disease and infection is indeed the human. Hmm. Um, most likely, yes. well, I mean, our globalized population, you know, traveling everywhere, long lifespan, ability to actually treat these um, illnesses, raising livestock. We've got a lot of STIs in the past from livestock, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and no, that doesn't mean people had to have sex with the livestock to no, get, just to get it. No, just close proximity. <laughs> I know. I just didn't want to imply that. Mm, got it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when you think about it, in an animal, an STI could cause death, but also infertility, which they would do in humans if we didn't treat them. So it's not just, oh, no, you might die of an STD. It's, it, you might be able to recover, but now you're infertile. So that right, takes which, you out of the deep Which is pool. basically the same thing from a genetic standpoint. It is exactly the standpoint. same thing from an yeah. evolutionary perspective, yes. Um, so, you know, an example I think many of you have heard of is, is koalas. Um, one of the leading causes of death in koalas is chlamydia. Uh, it is caused by a different chlamydia than in humans. Same genus, different species. In koalas, it's chlamydia pecorum. And in humans, it's chlamydia uh, trachomatis. It's pretty serious. Uh, it's an issue for koalas. They're trying to find, they think they maybe have found some antibiotics that are going to work and not also destroy the gut flora of the koala because they've been just using human antibiotics. And, and while they worked with the disease, they've been wreaking havoc on a koala's digestive tract. Um, but, but just to tell you how serious it is, some wild populations, once the chlamydia enters the pop, chlamydia enters the population, um, there's a hundred percent rate of infection. Every, That's a every pretty high rate. Yes, because um, so think about baby koalas. Mm -hmm. Part of the part of the thing that the mother does is feed them pap, which comes out of her butt and is infected with chlamydia. Yeah. So all the offspring will get it, and it can lead to blindness and bladder inflammation and infertility and death and all these awful things. Um, like I said, though, there is hope for the poor little koalas. They they think they found some good antibiotics now, but we'll see. Um, so, so yeah, that's a lot of issues that sex can cause. And just as a reminder, asexual organisms have to deal with none of that. Right. So you can probably see now why sexual reproduction is thought of as such a paradox. You're, you're starting to hit on some explanations. Um, but I would just like to reiterate that evolutionary biologists that have been doing this for decades and decades and decades don't feel satisfied with their explanations. And therefore, yes, there are definitely positives. And we're going to talk about that next week. And by positives, I mean evolutionary advantages. Right. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of these questions just aren't perfectly answerable. They don't have a satisfying answer. Um, next episode, I'm also going to talk about some of the models that we have right now for how sex might have actually evolved. Cool. Um, I'm really interested and I should get 
to writing that. (laughs) I'm sure it will be awesome and I'm sure I'll learn new things because right now I can't really remember any of it. So that's awesome. It's a good cliffhanger for everyone, (laughs) including yourself. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) So thank you so much for spending your time hanging out with us on Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Make sure to catch us next episode on the Evolution of Sex Part 2 so you can learn something new. Mm